really good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, this is a Sunday I've been looking forward to for some time. Uh, we have the distinct privilege of having Gary and Bev DeSalvo with us. Uh, Gary has been the senior pastor of Temple Bible Church since 1981. Uh, Bev and Gary have been married for 41 plus years. They have a ministry throughout the world, over 20 different countries. Uh, Temple Bible Church, I know that some of you are from Temple Bible Church, and so you're really excited to see Gary. Uh, it is a significant church in Central Texas that has worldwide influence. And I've known Gary for 17 plus years. He has been a dear friend, a continual source of encouragement. There is so much that I have learned from this man, and that is why, for those of you who have never had a chance to meet him, it is a real honor and privilege to have you, Gary DeSalvo, here at Fellowship this morning. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's uh, good to be with you guys. Uh, we joined it all the way from Temple to be with you. And uh, no traffic on I-35 was marvelous. Just marvelous. And uh, Grant is a dear friend. Grant has uh, come alongside me, ministered to me, especially the last four and a half years. I'll tell you a little bit about that later. But uh, has come alongside and loved on me and cared for me, has driven back and forth to Temple multiple times. I'd rather come here because there are better restaurants in Waco than Temple. And uh, so it tells you a lot that he's willing to drive to Waco to be with me. So delighted to be here. Recognize a number of you guys had folks come up and said, hey, Pastor Gary, you did my wedding way back when. And uh, had another couple come up and said, hey, we're headed to Mission Field. Uh, we appreciate the years we had in Temple. So uh, thank you for having us. My dear bride, uh, we met on a blind date. She was blind. I was a date. And uh, we've been together ever since. We are LSU Tigers. We bleed purple and gold, and we finally won a football game. So uh, we're feeling really good today, really good. Every day's a gift, and we're going to talk about that in a second. So if you have your Bibles or your apps, would you open them up or turn them on to Daniel chapter 3? Daniel chapter 3, very familiar story that you're going to uh, recognize as we talk about three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, and the story of the fiery furnace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time of worship. Thank you for uh, the faithfulness of this body. Thank you for the impact they're having in this community. And God, would you continue to bless them? Would you let their light shine and let the darkness of those who don't know Christ be driven away through the light of Jesus? Thank you for my friend Grant. And Father, I pray blessing over he and his family. And as we all wrestle with difficult things in our lives, I pray that indeed our lives will model Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. How do you respond when your faith is tested? I mean, when your faith is really tested, how do you respond? I'm not talking about when you don't get a parking place, you know, at the very front of HEB and have to walk 20 further feet. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about when you go to Starbucks and you're in the drive through and the person in front of you can't make a decision and stay there for about 20 minutes. Not that that's ever happened to me and wanted to blow my horn, right? I mean, how do you respond when your faith is really tested? I love the story of an old grandmother who lived in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, she was a woman of persevering faith, a strong faith, and she lived next door to a person that uh, had no faith, a, a man who had no faith at all. And so every morning she would get out, walk on her front porch and say, praise God for another day. And her neighbor would shout from his porch, there ain't no God. And every day she'd go out and say, praise God for another day. And he would say, there ain't no God, I tell you. So one day she had fallen upon hard times. And uh, she barely had money to get by, and uh, this neighbor uh, had saw the, knew the routine and stuff. And so on this particular day, she walked out to the front porch and she saw two or three bags of groceries. 
And she said, praise God for another day. And he supplied me with meals for a week. And the neighbor came out from behind a bush and said, I tell you, there ain't no God. I put the groceries right there. And she looked up to heaven and said, God, thank you not only for sending me food, but for making the devil pay for it. <laughs> when your faith is tested, how do you respond? What do you do? How do you respond? Where do you go? What do you do? And I'm talking about when you really struggle, when your spouse says, hey, I never really loved you. I'm headed somewhere else, found somebody else. But when you're betrayed by a friend that you was your BFF and you loved him and cared for him and all of a sudden they go out and you never hear from you text and you, you, you watch those for those three little dots on your phone knowing that they're coming back and you send another text and they don't respond I, I'm sick I'm almost 63 when I text it takes me about five minutes to get something done but you know you, you wait and you wait for those dots to come up know they're responding and they never come what do you do what do you do how, how do you respond to a broken heart how do you respond when there's death? How do you respond when there's struggles within your family? How do you respond when your, your daughter says, Dad, I need to talk to you. I think I'm pregnant. Or your son comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, we need to talk. I'm coming out. I'm gay. What do you do when you have a prodigal son or daughter? What, what, what do you do when that comes? How, when your faith comes out? There's a, a lady who thought her son had become a prodigal. He'd gone off to college, and uh, his second year, his roommate was going to be a female. He assured his mom, a single mom, that uh, it was just a platonic relationship. They were living in the same apartment, but there was nothing going on. The mom came to visit. She watched them interact over dinner. She realized there's more than a platonic relationship going on there. So she went back home, and after about two weeks, uh, she got an email from her, from her son. And uh, he said... Uh, his girlfriend had gone to him or her roommate supposedly said that ever since the mom had left there was a beautiful silver gravy ladle that her mom had given to her was missing so the son named brian the girlfriend named jennifer brian sent an email to his mom dear mom i'm not saying you did take the gravy ladle from the house and i'm not saying you didn't take the gravy ladle from the house but the fact remains since you came to dinner a couple of weeks ago the gravy ladle has been missing ever since love your son Brian. Several hours later, she received an email, or Brian received an email back from his mom. Dear son, I'm not saying you do sleep with Jennifer, and I'm not saying you don't sleep with Jennifer. But the fact remains, if Jennifer was sleeping in her own bed, she'd have found the gravy ladle by now. <laughs> Love mom. Now, the moral of that story is you don't mess with mamas, right, ladies? You get amen from mamas out there? There you go. You don't mess with mamas. But the other moral of that story is sometimes life is difficult. Sometimes we go through trials. Sometimes there's pain. Sometimes the disease does turn to death. Sometimes the marriage ends in divorce. Sometimes the sickness gets worse. What do you do in those times? The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is about those times. It's about a fiery test. It's about three Hebrew boys who are going to be tested like nobody's been tested or like they would never be tested again. It's a story not only of these three young boys. But it's a story of their God. It's a story of their God. It's a story about the greatness of their God. So in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar is the king. Nebuchadnezzar sets up an idol. It says in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. The height which was 60 cubits and the width was 6 cubits. And he set in the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, 
uh, we don't deal in cubits here, do we? So the, 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 the size of that is about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Now picture something 90 feet high. That's about eight stories, 9 feet at the base. Well, there had to be a pestle or something to hold her and go toppling over. So, so this image is set up, and we're not told what the image is of, but perhaps that image is of Nebuchadnezzar himself. We're not sure. And this is a time when their faith is going to be tested. Their faith is going to be tested. That's the first point of all this. So the, the, it's 90 feet high, 9 feet wide at its base. And he sets it up on the plains. Now, why would you set a statue? By the way, eight stories tall, there are two buildings in Temple, Texas that tall. That's it, nothing else. If you look to your left and you're going down I-35, there's a bank building and there's also an old hotel down there. Nothing else is over eight stories tall, nothing. And, and so this is a huge statue. And he puts it on the plains. Well, why do you put something on the plains? You've been to, have you been to West Texas? Have you driven through? Hey, let me see your hand. Have you driven through West Texas? But what, what do you think about it? You know what the plains are, right? I mean, just flat. I had a friend that moved to Midland. He wrote me an email. He said, Pastor Gary, my dog ran away and I watched it run away for three days. I mean, why do you put something on the plane? You put on the plane so it's visible, so you can see it. And the expectation from Nebuchadnezzar is that the whole nation's going to worship this idol. The whole nation's going to come together and worship this idol. Ninety feet high, nine feet at its base, in the plane, so everybody can see it. And so he concocts a plan. And the plan is very simple. The plan is, we go to the next slide, it's faith tested. And so uh, what's going to happen here is that he's going to gather everybody together, the leader specifically. If you look at verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, all the rules of the provinces to come to the dedication of this idol. And so as the leaders of a nation go, so go the people, right? So he's wise enough to bring the leaders together so the people will follow. And, and he concocts a scenario. The scenario is this. We're going to gather the orchestra together. When the orchestra, when the conductor raises the baton and the orchestra strikes up, everybody's to bow down. And I find that, I'm not making that up, guys. It's found in verses 4 and 5. The herald loudly proclaimed to you, the command is given, people, nations, men of every language, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. So here's what's to happen. The, the conductor raises the baton, the, the band strikes, the orchestra strikes, and everybody's to get on their knee and bow down before this golden image. That's what's to happen. And so everybody realizes what's to take place. They gather. It's the leaders gathering right now. And so when they come together, he also says in verse 6, whoever doesn't do this, whoever doesn't fall down, whoever doesn't worship this idol will be immediately cast into a fiery furnace. So the admonition is bow or burn. Bow or burn. That's the choice given to you. Now, I don't know about you, but if that was a choice given to me, I could probably find a way to rationalize my way of bowing for that time. The king is the government. I'm supposed to submit to the government, so maybe I bow. My family needs me. Maybe I bow. But that's not what happened here. You're familiar with the story. At that time, when all the people heard the, all this noise, uh, they all fell down and worshipped, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They kept standing. They kept standing. Reminds me of a story that a friend of mine told me. It's about uh, three college guys who were taking a summer off to tour Europe. 
uh, they end up in France and they decide they're going to go to Mass since it's Sunday morning and uh, that was the only church available to them. So they're gone to Mass. They didn't understand French and they'd never been to Catholic Mass before. And so they were taking their cues from a guy. There were three college guys. They're taking their cues from a guy two pews up from them. When he stood up, they stood up. When he sat down, they sat down. When he knelt down, they knelt down. And so the, the, they followed him through the Mass. And then there came a time when everybody was sitting down. The priest said something in French from the front. And that guy stood up. When he stood up, those three guys stood up, and the whole congregation broke out laughing. Just like you did. And nobody had any idea. Those three guys had no idea why. They didn't understand French. So after the service, they went to the priest who spoke English. And they said, we're not sure exactly what happened there. We must have done something inappropriate because everybody laughed at us. He said, well, I announced that a birth had taken place in the parish, and I asked the father of the new child to stand up. And... <laughs> Let me tell you what. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they face much more than being laughed at. They faced a fiery furnace. If you don't bow, you don't get to your knees before this idol, you're going to die. You're going to die. And they had a choice to make. Now, Shadrach, and Mesh- Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego, they knew the Old Testament. They were friends of Daniel, the godly man, godly prophet. They... New Exodus chapter 20, which says this, it's the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, and the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Basically what it says, you're not to have any idols. You don't bow down before any idols. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that we've grown past this, aren't you? I'm grateful we live in a culture where there are no idols. Laughter, right? You know, First John was written many, many years after Daniel. <clears throat> and it's interesting, John, the beloved apostle, when he concludes that little epistle, in the very last verse, after teaching on love, he uses a warning. That's how he concludes the book. It's kind of out of place if you study the book of First John. You know what his warning is? First John 5.21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. The words keep yourselves in Greek literally mean guard yourself from idols. And so John ends this little epistle, and he says, hey, you've got to watch for idols because they're going to be in your life. Idols are going to come. One author wrote this. He said, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many today are driven in depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over body image. We, not, we may not burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice when we neglect our family in our community to achieve a place of more wealth and prestige in our business. Idols. Got any? The good book written by Tim Keller, if you recognize that name, Tim Keller, Pastor Redeemer Church in Manhattan. It's a book called Counterfeit Idols. Read it when it came out about four or five years ago. If you haven't read it, it's worth picking up and reading. Tim Keller, Counterfeit Idols. In it, he defines an idol this way. What is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, anything you seek to give you only what God can give. Idols capture our imagination. We can locate them by looking at our daydreams. What do you enjoy imagining? What are your fondest dreams? We look to our idols to love us, to provide us with value, a sense of beauty, significance, and worth. What are you dreaming about? What captures your mind during the day? 
Disney with one of my friends. All he could talk about was bow season just opened, bow season just opened, bow season just opened. And another friend, well, November, that, that first weekend in November, uh, gun season opens, gun season opens. Got any deer hunters out there? Bunch of you. Going to kill Bambi's dad this year, right? I mean, I mean, is it on your mind? I, I'm a college football guy. I love college football. It, it become almost an idol in my life. I had a rival subscription. I, I'm, I'm spending like an hour every day reading three LSU websites, and we got so bad it was really easy to give it up, actually. But, but I, I gave up my rival subscription about four years ago because I recognize I'm reading about 17, 18-year-old high school kids where they want to go play college football, and they change their minds a day of anyway. And I thought, what a waste. Well, and, and there's nothing wrong with that if you're doing that. But for me, it becomes something I couldn't live without, which is crazy. It's crazy. What is it you can't live without? What do you think about all day? What do you dream about all day? Maybe it's your football team. Probably not an issue in Waco right now, but... <laughs> Hunting? Travel? Can't wait to Travel? We're knocking off the last thing on my bucket list this week. We go to France tomorrow. We go see Normandy. I'm a World War II guy. Last thing on my bucket list. Been thinking about it, scheming, dreaming, wondering where it's going to go. Maybe it's shopping for you. Maybe it's the call to the mall that you always have to answer. You, you, know, you know what's an idol in our day and age? This thing right here. This thing. How many of you have left your house, realized you forgot your phone at home, turned around and went back? Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. Keep them high. Either you don't have a phone or you're lying right now, one or the other. I mean, it's amazing how addicted we are to this, isn't it? I looked up some statistics uh, recently. I got online before preparing this message. It's quite interesting what happens. People check their cell phones on an average. How many times do you think a day? hundreds uh, too many. How many? 45 times a day we check our phone. 45 times a day. I skew the average. I'm above that. I guarantee you. It, this has become an idol. I bet we got a two-for-one at Redbox today. We may stop on the way home. I just came through. <laughs> I mean, really, I can't live without it. What is it? What is it you can't live without? What do you dream about? What do you scheme about? What do you think about? That's an idol. Well, as the scriptures go on, we recognize that uh, these three young men had a choice to make. Um, the people that ratted out on them are the Chaldeans, if you look at verse 8. Uh, for this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward, brought charges against the Jews. Uh, they responded to Nebuchadnezzar, king lived forever. They get an audience with the king. You yourself made a decree that everybody, when they hear the orchestra, should fall down and worship. But, verse 11, whoever doesn't fall down is going to be cast into this blazing fire. Uh, king, you need to know something. There are certain Jews, there are certain boys, certain men, uh, whom you've appointed over the administration. If you underline words in your Bible, you've appointed over your administration. I think there's jealousy. I think they're motivated by jealousy. I can't tell you that for certain, but it certainly looks like it when I read that passage. Hey, King, you put these guys over us. And guess what? They didn't bow down. They're ratting them out. They're ratting them out. That's what they're doing. Hey, th these are the guys you put over us, and they're not listening to you. And so now we move from their faith being tested to their faith being demonstrated. 
from their faith being tested to their faith being demonstrated. Look at verse 13. So Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring them to his presence. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came in, and he said, Is it true, verse 14, that you don't serve my gods or worship the idol I set up? And if you're ready, he gives them a second chance. You can do it now. If you look at the end of verse 15, he says, But if not, though it's a blazing fire, and if you write in your Bibles, underline, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? He's going to come to regret those words. What God is there? Hey, he's a megalomaniac. There's no God greater than I am. There's not a God that can deliver out of my hands. That's not going to happen. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Abednego. I never said that word right. Bev has reminded me ten times how to say it. Anyway, the other dude with the A word. They said, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, here's our answer. Verse 17. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of, our, uh, out of your hand, O king. We, we've got a God who can deliver us. But I love the next words. But if not. But even if not. But even if not, we're not going to bow before your stupid idol. Before your... I can't say the words. I got six grandkids. Like one of them went to Bev and said, Papado, my, my grandpa's name, they don't call me grandpa, they call me Papado. I'm from New Orleans. Papado is my favorite restaurant. So all my grandkids call me Papado. <laughs> Papado said the S word. And Bev's eyes got that big. He said stupid in front of us. So I take that back. Uh, a dumb idol, not a stupid idol. But it is stupid. <laughs> but even if not, let it be known to you, O King, that you're not gonna, we're not going to serve your God and worship that image. But even if not, what's your even if not? Hey, God, even if the disease comes back, even if not, even if I'm not healed, e- even if I don't get that research project funded, even if I don't get that professorship, even if I don't get that promotion, even if my prodigal son doesn't return home, even if you fill in that blank, they're undergoing a fiery trial. And they say, but even if not, we're going to keep serving our God. My even if not started four and a half years ago. I've always been healthy. I'm a weightlifter. I walk five miles three times a week with friends two to three times a week. I've been healthy my whole life. I would not missed a Sunday at Temple Bible Church due to sickness in all the years I've been there, 32 years. And all of a sudden, the back screen, we've got a big screen in the back of our church, and all of a sudden, that screen got a little fuzzy. And then I noticed week after week, it got more and more fuzzy, and I put my hand over my left eye, and anything I looked at was kind of blurry. And so I told my son-in-law about it. My son-in-law uh, trained at Scott and White. He's an ophthalmologist in College Station. He went back to Mecca. He's from College Station. He was in the Corps of Cadets. They worship A&M. I could chastise him all the time about that because that's an idol in his life. <laughs> but he trained in ophthalmology. So I said, hey, Bill, I, I, I don't know what's going on, but I noticed everything is blurry out of my right eye. And he said, well, this is four years ago. It's 58. I'm be 63 next month. And he said, uh, probably got a cataract at your age. I always wore contacts, never wore glasses. Probably your contacts are bad. And I remember I put a contact in my eye, a new contact, like somewhere in that process over those couple of months. And 
immediately it tore. I put a second one in it tore, and I just thought, I got a bad set of contacts, a bad box full. And so uh, he said, make an appointment with Brian, my optometrist, dear friend of mine at Temple Bible Church. And so I make an appointment. I go to see him. It was April 3rd, 2013. And I walk in his office, and he high-fives me. We're hooing and hollering. You know, we're hollering. He said, today, 25 years ago, I came to know Christ at an Easter service at Temple Bible Church. And so he's high-fived me. And then he starts looking at my eye, eyes. And uh, he looks at it and he says i need to step out for a minute i'll be back in what i didn't know he did we've got a lot of folks from the ophthalmology department at our church and he went and found three other brothers prayed because he had to walk back into an examining room and tell his good friend his pastor that he had a very severe eye cancer that's why his vision was blurry he had a partially torn retina because of a lesion in his eye lesions a code word for tumor and i had a tumor the size of an acorn in my eye and i, I didn't have a headache i didn't have anything just blurred vision and uh, so he tells me this, and you know, you're, you, you hear those words, you've got ocular melanoma. Well, it's a very rare disease. One in seven million people get them a year. My family practice guy is one of my elders as well. He's been in practice for 34 years. I'm his only ocular melanoma patient ever. And so we, get, we go down the hallway. A good friend of mine is the retina guy there. He takes a look at it, and the gravity of that situation begins to hit us. It's a very severe eye cancer. The next week, you go to MD Anderson, get a second opinion. The next week, uh, they took my right eye out. Uh, that ophthalmologist is one of my elders, and uh, his name is Jonathan. Uh, and my line is, hey, if you fall asleep in Jonathan, he takes your eye out. Stay awake in front of him. Okay. So Jonathan took my eye out. I've got a prosthesis here. Uh, I'm a diehard LSU Tiger. I think I've got my Tiger eye on that PowerPoint somewhere. I, I am the most diehard LSU Tiger in the world, and that'll prove it right there. I've got an eye of the Tiger. Uh, this eye comes out, that goes in, game day only in the fall. That's the only time I wear it. Okay, take that off because I'll never pay attention after that. And so, uh, so they send tissue off and you get results back. And I got a bad prognosis. And the prognosis was you got a 30% chance to live five years. And so every six months you go get a CAT scan. And for four years, everything was great. Go get CAT scans. Everything's normal. Uh, my oncologist, who's a friend of mine, used to be in our church, would call and say, you've got another boring scan. Well, just a couple of months ago in June, actually four months ago now, he didn't call. So I go get my CAT scan, and he usually calls, and my appointment's two days later. And we thought, Bev especially thought that's a bit unusual, so she decides to come with me to that appointment. And sure enough, he says, uh, Gary, i got bad news for you. This, yeah. It's going to your liver. And I'm telling you guys, it was like, really? I mean, really? Does this look like the body of a guy with metastatic liver cancer? Looks like a guy who spends too much time at Papa Do's eating seafood. And uh, we've studied ocular melanoma. I mean, my whole family has. And so once it goes to your liver, you have a 10% chance to survive 12 months. Let that sink in. That was four months ago. I've got a 10% chance to survive eight more months. I did. But I'm here today to testify to you that we have prayed to the same deliverer that delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we have begged him for extended life. And we're asking him for that. 
but even if not, even if not, we're still going to praise him. And every day is a gift. And we have the gift of today. Amen? And so my even if not is God may take me to glory within the next eight months. He may not. Ten percent of people don't die that soon. You don't survive metastatic liver cancer. I know the statistics. But I'm here to testify to you, my friends at Fellowship Bible Church Waco. And I'm asking you to pray for my bride myself. That if God chooses to send us down the pathway of metastatic liver cancer and die from that, and I've buried folks and watched folks go through that, it's not pretty. That we will be able to say to the day we finish, but even if not. So I don't know what your even if not is. Maybe our brother up here lost a granddaughter. It may be somebody out here who's just lost a loved one. It may be that you've got the prodigal son or daughter. It may be that you're dealing with some disease. It may be that your best friend has broken up and gone away. It may be I've got a friend who's never met his grandkids and they're over two years old. Because the daughter-in-law hates the in-laws. What's your even if not? But even if not, we're not going to bow that idol. We're going to trust our God. Well, you know the rest of the story. It's found in the next verses. In the next verses, we see their faith is vindicated. Their faith is vindicated. They say, hey, we're going to get in here. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he responds as you thank you. We look at verse 19. He's filled with wrath. He's filled with anger. His facial expression changes. They heat the furnace up seven times more than it was supposed to be. The, they, the, he dresses them. Look at verse 21. He, he put trousers, coats, caps, clothes, cast them into the midst of the fiery furnace. I mean, he makes sure they're going to catch fire and burn. He makes sure it's going to happen. Even the guys that threw them in, in verse 21, they died because the flame was so hot. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown in. And Nebuchadnezzar looks down there, and he says, I thought we put three people in there, but I see four walking around. The fourth one is like a son of the God. Some would say that's the pre-incarnate Christ walking around with them. They are protected by God. Nebuchadnezzar brings them out. And Nebuchadnezzar has said, no God will be able to save you. And then in verse 29, he says, therefore, I make a decree to all the people, to every nation, to every Every time that if anybody speaks offensive about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, kill him. And we should say, glory, hallelujah. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine that? All of a sudden, he says, Nobody's gonna, nobody can overcome me. And he says, you know what? If you don't worship the God that they worship and you speak badly about them, you die. I just love that. I just love that. Because now we're seeing this is not just about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's about their God, isn't it? It's about the greatness of their God. It's not, it's not them. It's their God that saved them. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the book about God. The book of Daniel has Daniel's name on it. It's really a book about Daniel's God. I, I mean, every single book you see here, we read Exodus about Moses, really about Moses' God. We read about David and the kings. It's really about David's God. And so I leave you with three applications. Three applications. Application number one, God is good and God is great. If there's anything we learn from the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's that we have a good God and we have a great God. And that good God may not answer prayers the way we want them answered. I'd love to live to be an old man with my, with my bride. I mean, some of you young people think you are an old man. What are you talking about? I'd love, to, I'd love to see my six grandkids grow up. I'd love to pastor for about five or six more years, but I don't know if I'm going to have that. But I can tell you, even if not, God is a good God and he's a great God. Amen? 
And we seek to rob him of his glory sometimes. Louis the Great. I've been reading about France. Louis the Great. When he died, he, he, was, he was a control freak. He arranged his funeral. It was in Notre Dame in Paris. And when he arranged his funeral, he wanted to be at night. He wanted one single candle, huge candle, to be lit across in front of his coffin. He wanted to be at night so the gold coffin would be seen and Louis the Great would be on display for the world to see. Bishop, Max, Bishop Massilion, at the start of that service, he comes down the aisle in the great procession. And he walks up to that candle, whoo, blows it out, and he said, only God is great. Is he great in your life? As he blesses you, do you give him glory? Do you recognize what he's done? Only God is great. He's a good God and he's a great God. Second application. Second application is this. Sometimes God delivers us from the fire. Sometimes he allows us to be consumed by the fire, but always he walks with us through the fire. I can't tell you the trial you're going through is ever going to end. I can't tell you that. But I can tell you this. He's going to walk with you every step of the way. Every step of the way, your God is going to walk with you. It's a promise. It goes, it's over and over in the scriptures. You remember when Joshua was replacing Moses? Three times in Joshua chapter 1, he says, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. All three times he follows up by saying what? I'm with you. I'm with you. Joshua, you can do this. I'm going to be with you. Same instruction he gave to Moses back then. When Moses commanded to go before Pharaoh, I'm going to be with you. And then we fast forward to the Great Commission. The Great Commission, send disciples out. Go, therefore, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all life from in you. And lo, I, lo, I am what? With you to the end of the age. I'm going to be with you. You're not gone on your own. I'm going to be with you. And in Hebrews chapter 13, I will never what? I will never leave you nor what? desert you. He's going to be with you. I'm going to tell you, he walks through any fire you're in. He'll never desert you. He'll never desert you. We're in the midst of a fire right now, but I'm going to tell you, we've pressed into God. He's pressed into us like never before. Third and final application. The ultimate delivers Jesus. See, there, there's, a, there's a greater fire than a fiery furnace, and it's the fire of hell. And my friends, the only thing that'll keep you out of that fire and save you from that fire is a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus who gave his life for you. And you may be here telling me know about Jesus. My question is, do you really know Jesus? Have you personally trusted him as your Lord and Savior? Because I think this whole fiery furnace thing is about our great God. It's also a picture of our Savior who's a great Savior and can spare us not from a temporary fire, but from an eternal fire. I believe that this passage is teaching us. Faith is not every about everything coming out okay, but faith is trusting God no matter how things turn out. Faith is not about everything coming out okay, but it's about trusting God no matter how things come out. Does the name Joseph Scriven mean anything to you? Anybody recognize that name, Joseph Scriven? You may not recognize the name. You're going to recognize what he wrote, though. Joseph Scriven was a young man from Ireland. He emigrated to Canada. Uh, he became engaged and uh, with the love of his life. And the night before their wedding, uh, it's the 1850s, she and her bridal party are traveling on a horseback from a dinner party back to where they're going to stay. And on the way, they're crossing a bridge. Something spooked the horse she was on. The horse reared up, threw her off the bridge to her death in a river below. 
the night before their wedding, his bride, his fiancée, was killed. I don't remember the timeline. I think it's three or maybe five years later, he's engaged again. He engaged another young lady. Two months before their wedding, she contracts pneumonia in a cold Canadian, cold Canadian winter. And she succumbs. She dies. Short time after that, his dear mother, who's back in Ireland, passed away as well within months. Scriven was in all type of grief, as you can imagine, and heartache. And he sat down at his desk one day, and he wrote these words. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Do you think that man understood grief? What a privilege to carry. Everything to God in prayer. Oh, with peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Do you recognize Joseph Scriven now? Great hymn writer. Those words came out of brokenness, out of a fiery pit. And he wrote these words. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, you're a refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. My friends, I don't know what your fiery trial is today. But I can tell you, just as Scriven was protected by a Savior and found a friend in Jesus, so can you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for seeing us and being with us and walking next to us when we go through the fiery pit. Thank you, Father, that in the midst of all of this, the display of your goodness, your greatness, and your love. And Father, as we hear Fellowship Bible Church Waco 2017, sit in comfort. We thank you for the comforter of the Holy Spirit who comes to us. My friends, if you're here today and you're not sure Jesus is your Savior, I invite you right now to recognize eternal hope and eternal life that's found in him, and you can trust him even right now, right where you sit. And say, my desire is to know you, to walk with you, and to be forgiven of my sin. Or maybe you know the Savior, and you're going through a fiery trial, and you're not pressing into him. And you're grasping at all kinds of straws, but you're not looking to him. Or you've got some idol you need to get rid of today. I pray that right now, right where you sit, you do business with the Savior who gave his life on your behalf. We pray in his name.